And we're going to be in chapter 11, going into chapter 12 this morning. We see a ramping up of conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. We see a ramping up, a climax. Those of us who've been around long enough, we know how this is going to end. We know Jesus is going to get killed. What really killed Jesus? When some of us talk with our unbelieving neighbors or unbelieving family members, and they maybe even grew up in the church, but they reject Jesus, what is the rejection of Jesus really all about? What is at the root? What is at the heart? And what are some of the lessons that we can take from it, lest we think of them as rejectors of Jesus, as if we follow Jesus' word fully? Jesus comes, approaches Jerusalem, he checks out the temple, he leaves, he comes back to the temple, he flips a bunch of tables, he whips people out of there. And so he is hated, he is not well received by the authorities, but the crowds still love him. And then we see at the bottom of chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus is questioned, and that's not bad. It is not bad to question Jesus. The sin that we see here is not questioning Jesus. There's nothing wrong with asking Jesus a question. But I think you'll see as we dig a little deeper that there's a problem with how the question is being asked or why the question is being asked. And they came again to Jerusalem. So you see, Jesus keeps approaching Jerusalem, coming in and out. And as he approaches, things get hotter. Things get more difficult. We're building toward a climax. They are seething with hatred toward him. They want to kill him. They don't know how yet. The crowds aren't on their side. They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Doing what things? Well, his teaching, which is aberrant from what they would teach, first of all, but second of all, like flipping the tables. (laughs) Who, Who are you to come in here and flip tables and whip people out of the courts? Like, we've been doing this for a long time. We're the leaders here. We've got the scribes that are in charge of Scripture. We've got the elders that are the rulers of the place. We've got the chief priests, not just any old priest, the chief priests. And who are you to come in here, the son of a carpenter with your ragtag group of tax collector dude and fisherman guys, and start clearing out the place and not allowing people to carry their things around? By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? So Jesus answers their question with a question, which could be annoying when somebody's just evading your question. Right? You ask them a question, they're like, well, well, how about you? Well, we're not talking about that. I'm talking about this. That's evasive. But Jesus is not evading. He's actually answering their question. If you will answer this question... Therein lies the answer to your question. I'm not evading it. I'm answering it. If you're willing to answer my question, you'll have your answer. 
So Jesus says to them in verse 29, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. (laughs) I love that. If you'll answer this, then you'll have your answer. He puts the question, he's an answer now. It's aggressive. He's still flipping tables up in there. Just not physically now. He's, he's, He's body slamming them in this debate, this argument, right? I'll ask you one question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now you remember in the beginning of the Gospels, we see this, uh, this we find him to be a little weird, you know, um, he wears furs, he eats locusts, and he lives out in the wilderness, and he's a little bit out there, but he's a prophet, and he's preaching repentance, and he's baptizing people in repentance, and the leaders of the synagogues were looking on and seeing this, but they weren't participating. They're not going to be baptized by this weirdo. He hasn't gone through the hoops. He hasn't gone through the ranks. Who's his rabbi? Which rabbi taught that guy? John the Baptist, he's just out there. But the people love them. And hundreds, you would suppose, of people are standing around in the temple. This is a crowded time for the temple that were baptized by John. But the scribes and the chief priests and the rulers, they didn't like John the Baptist. They certainly didn't think he was legit. They didn't want him to be. So Jesus poses a question that's a dilemma for them. You'll see that dilemma as we move forward. Verse 31, and they discussed it with one another. I love that. They didn't just answer. They were like, we'll be right back. (laughs) They go into a huddle. And Jesus is standing there like, the crowd is probably snickering as you just did. That's kind of funny. Just answer the guy. It's a yes or no. Why are they huddling? They discuss it with one another saying, if we say that John's baptism is from heaven, then Jesus will say, well, why didn't you believe him? Oops. We can't legitimize John's baptism because then we still haven't been baptized. Meaning, we need to repent. We're not willing to repent. Not to him, not to John, not to Jesus. We can't say that. Verse 32, but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. We either surrender to Jesus or get beat up by the crowds. (laughs) Neither of those options are looking pretty good for them. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. That's what they came up with after their huddle. We do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus is not dodging the question. He's exposing the fact that they really don't want the answer to the question. And because you really don't want the answer to the question, I'm not going to give it to you. And the reason why we know that you don't want the answer to the question is because you won't answer it. You don't care about the truth. You don't care about what the real answer is. You know what the real answer is. And you know by what authority I do these things. You're not willing to accept it. And the reason why you're not willing to accept it is because it has everything to do with authority. 
You see that emphasized in the passage. You see it twice in verse 27. Or uh, verse 28. They said to him, by what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you this authority? Then you see it again in verse 29. If you answer this question, I'll tell you by what authority. You see Mark laying it on thick in uh, verse 27 that he was confronted by chief priests and scribes and elders. These are the ruling authorities there. And they want to know, as you come in here and try to upend how we do things, we want to know who is your authority such that you would subvert our authority. That's really the question. Who are you to contradict our authority? What kind of authority is that? And the reason why they don't want to answer the question is because if they say that John's baptism was from heaven, then it legitimizes Jesus' baptism, which means it legitimizes his authority. You remember at Jesus' baptism, God pronounces, this is my beloved son. But if they deny it, then they lose the crowd. And if they lose the crowd, what happens to their authority? Let me tell you something. You can call yourself a leader all day long. If you don't have followers, guess what you're not? A leader. And so leadership without the people, authority with no one to rule over, a bully with no one to pick on, a swindler with no one to swindle, a villain without any victims, what are they? They can't lose the people. Whichever way they answer Jesus' authority, they lose theirs. And that's why they can't answer. This is a battle over authority. They love it. They want it. And they will not be dethroned. That's their problem with Jesus. Their problem isn't that he's healing people. Their problem isn't even that he's famous. Their problem is that he's contradicting them. And he's putting them in this corner where they have to either surrender and follow or lose the people at least at this moment. So it's not that they question Jesus. It's okay to question Jesus. But when you question Jesus, do you really want the truth? They don't. So they're in a dilemma. And as I read this, I wonder, man, is there anything that I see is clearly authoritative from Scripture that I'm just resisting? Is there anything you know is clear is God's will? And you're just, you're just not doing it. What's missing is not that you believe it's true. What's missing is that you are not living in light of its truth. You're resisting it. You're rejecting it. That puts us in bad company. Because the rejection of Jesus here, the rejection of his authority, stems from a heart of hatred. Man's natural heart is one that seeks autonomy. No one tells me what to do. And when Jesus shows up and says he's king, he's by virtue of saying that, saying, 
You're not king, I'm king. On the throne of your heart should be me, not you. And it stems from a place of murderous rebellion. You may go, that's a little exaggerated. Well, no, it's not. If that were exaggerated, we wouldn't have just had a piece of bread that represents a shattered body and a cup that represents spilled blood because that's what we're getting into here. Jesus foretells it in a parable. It starts in in chapter 12. By the way, just as a reminder, many of you know this already, maybe some of you don't, but when you were reading the Bible, the numbers weren't there. Mark didn't put chapter numbers and verse numbers. That was there, you know, way later so that we can just find our place. If I say turn to Mark 12, it's easier than turn to the Gospel of Mark and go like, you know, a couple pages. Like, that would be hard. So it's just for reference. But there's no real separation between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. It just goes right into it. It's the same story. So they question Jesus. He doesn't evade it. He asks them a question they can't answer, that they refuse to answer. They could answer it intellectually. They refuse to answer it, so they say we don't know. And then that prompts a parable. So chapter 12, verse 1, And he began to speak to them in parables. And here's one of them. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. By the way, a parable is a story that serves as an analogy, an illustration of something else. That's a parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants. So tenants are ones that are stewards of the place. They're supposed to take care of the place. They're the property managers of this wine press in which he put a lot of work, a lot of digging, a lot of fencing, a tower, a wine press, right? It's not a little garden in someone's backyard. This is a big deal. And he has tenants running it. And so when the season came, there should be fruit coming out of this place. There should be wine coming out of this place. And so the master, the owner, wants the fruit. He sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Get out of here. This is our fruit. But I'm here from the messenger. I'm a messenger from the, from the owner. Shut up. Beat him and sent them away with nothing. It wasn't like they beat him and sent him with half of what he should have had. Nothing. This is ours. This is ours. But your tenants, shut up. Say that again and I'll beat you again. All right, verse 4. Again, the owner sent to them another servant. Maybe this guy is a little better with diplomacy. Maybe he speaks a little better. Maybe, maybe a second time will work. Sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, and he sent another. And him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. And if you're reading that and your heart is in the story, you're like, oh, man, don't don't send your son. These people are crazy. But presumably what's happening here is he's saying, okay, 
Maybe they think these people don't have the legal right to come in here and demand stuff from the wine press. But a son has the legal right. But we all know how this is going to end. They beat all the other servants or killed all the other servants. What are they going to do to a son? He says, finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. See, he's saying the tenants, they got in their own little huddle. They broke off into their little huddle to discuss things. And what they came up with is this decision. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. We'll own the wine press. We'll be on the throne. We'll have to we'll do what we want. They see it as an opportunity to finally take for themselves what isn't rightfully theirs. So come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now Jesus poses the question. They already know that's what they want to do. Mark has already told us they want to kill Jesus. So they know he's talking about them. They know he's talking about Israel that has been entrusted with this message. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They're supposed to be a house of prayer in the temple for the nations, for the Gentiles. And instead of being a light, they've become abusers. They've become usurpers. They've taken over. And they don't care about truth and they don't care about what God says or who God sends to them. They'll beat them up or they'll kill them to protect ownership. They know they're talking, that he's talking about them. But Jesus includes a warning. He says in verse 9, What will the owner of the vineyard do? And the Greek owner is the same word for Lord. You say, well, what would the Lord do? And if you're wondering, does he mean Lord small L in the story or Lord capital L like God? He's like, yes, parable. What would the Lord do? You killed his son. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And so this is a path that is um, not one that they can win. It is one that is steeped in rebellion. It doesn't matter who the messenger is. It doesn't matter how many sermons are sent to them. It doesn't matter how many books are given to them. It doesn't matter uh, how many encouragements they're given, how many cards are written to them. It doesn't matter how many pats on the back they get. If you confront them with truth and threaten their authority... They'll kill you. Jesus says the owner is not going to stand for that. And at the end of that path is destruction. And I love how he includes in the parable their knowledge of who he is. You'll notice in verse 7, when the tenants talk to one another, they go, hey, look, we're not sure who this guy is, but let's just kill him. No, it's, we know who this guy is. And because he is who he is, because he's the heir, let's kill him. 
So Jesus is telling them, I know why you're asking that question. You're not asking that question because you're trying to figure out, am I the real deal? You're asking that question because you know I'm the real deal and you don't want any part of it. Because I'm the heir and this is my house. You don't want me to rule. You don't want me to reign. You want to throw off any fetters, anything that feels like chains, any, any kind of authority that is not your own. You want to cast it off. And brothers and sisters, if we look at this and we go, stupid Israel, we don't get what Scripture is doing throughout the whole Bible. Because this is a reflection of our hearts. Our hearts don't want to be ruled. Our hearts want freedom and autonomy. And I'm the boss. And I do what I want to do. And even for those of us that are saved and we're believers, we still struggle with the flesh. And when the flesh tugs at you and tempts you and you feel weak spiritually and you don't do what you're supposed to do, oftentimes it's that pride that got us into trouble in the first place. Yeah, if I bite this fruit, I'll know good and evil. I'll know what God knows. And if I know what God knows, then he doesn't necessarily reign and rule over me. I can kind of make decisions for myself. Crunch. And we've been doing that ever since. This is not solely an indictment of Israel. This is an indictment of the human heart that rebels. Jesus says on the other side of rebellion is destruction. If you don't repent, if you don't hand over the keys to the vineyard, so to speak, if you don't surrender to the authority of the heir, if you don't surrender to the authority of the son, Psalm 2, if you don't kiss the son, you will be shattered. The owner's not going to go, oh, sorry, I'll just surrender the universe to these people then. <laughs> Okie doke. No. But if we, if, we, if we look at this passage, in one angle, it looks like Jesus is saying, get with the program or get out. You might kill me now, but eventually you're going to die. He says in verse 10, have you not read the scripture? And he quotes um, a Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the Lord is building something. People didn't want that part. They wanted the building for themselves. And actually the building became all about Jesus Christ. This is all about him. He's the chief head stone. The whole building would fall apart were it not for him. So God is not going to include Jesus into the plan and lets everybody get along. Anyone that doesn't get with that chief cornerstone is going to be tossed out of the building. The whole building is about him. And so ironically, the one that they tried to reject so that they could keep the house, they get destroyed and the whole house is built on that one that was rejected. And verse 11, this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. We'll get back to that in a second, but verse 12 to finish it off. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people. There's Mark giving you this backdrop again. For they perceived that he had told the parables against them. They weren't total idiots. So they left him and went away. For now. <laughs> For now. But that quote from the, from the psalm, you rejected the, the stone, and that stone has become the head corner. The cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing. So when you look back at the parable, you don't go, oh, oh, don't send your beloved son. What is he doing? What an idiot. No, he knows what's going to happen to the son, and he does it anyway. It is his doing. And it is through that suffering of Christ that Christ will become the cornerstone. It is through that rejection by the tenants that the heir really rises to the throne. Ironically, what you wanted to stop happening, you made it happen. As he rises above death, above rulers, principalities, and all authorities, human and not human, through his death and resurrection. It is the Lord's doing. It was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. If you're sitting here and you're going, what a dark message. Basically, pastor's saying, you're terrible, you're rebellious hard, you're so far from him. Well, yeah, but what's marvelous about that? What's marvelous about that is it is through the rejection of Jesus here that we get rescue. He's going to the cross so that he can die for the very ones that rebel against him. This is why the owner persists with the servants and it culminates in his son. He knows his son is going to get killed. Does he want his son to just suffer because he's sadistic? No. The son is going to suffer so that he can save some of those tenants. If they would repent. They know this is the truth and they want to arrest him anyway because at the end of the day, even though that's the right path, they don't want to surrender their authority. But when you read this passage, you realize what better authority is there to surrender to? A God that loves so persistently that even though we beat up his servants and we cast out his messengers, he sends his only son knowing we'd kill him so that he can save us. What do you call that? Love? A steadfast, persistent love that doesn't flinch in the face of rebellion and rejection? He persists to offer the opportunity to change, to repent. So God doesn't just say through his son, I'm the owner. Get out. He's saying, I'm the owner, and I know you find it so difficult to trust me with ownership over you. But let me demonstrate it. Even if you kill my own son, I'll still offer a way through that death and resurrection for you to change. That is unimaginable love. We have a hard time forgiving someone if they take our parking spot at work. Kill your son so that the killer of the son can be saved by the son? If that's not marvelous in your eyes, then the only thing marvelous in your own eyes is your own authority. But I can tell you from my own experience, my own authority over my own life is terrible. When I don't do things the way the Lord wants me to do them, and I do them the lazy way, the way that comes naturally to me, I make a mess of things. He doesn't give us rules because he wants to flex his ownership over your life. He gives you rules because he wants you to follow a path that's best for you. So going back to the garden, you remember when 
uh, Cain, hatred is rising up in his heart against his brother. You remember that? His brother Abel. And he's mad because God didn't receive his sacrifice the same way that Abel's sacrifice was received. Does God come and just kick him in the head? Does God come alongside him and just say, Cain, you idiot! He has a fatherly conversation with Cain. You can just see him kind of getting down and saying, Cain, don't you know that if you do it the way I'm telling you, things will go well with you? God is saying, my heart is that things go well with you. My heart is not to make things difficult for you and just say, I'm the boss, you shut up. Even though he has the right to say that. But his heart is for things to go well with you. And he gives him a lesson. Because of what's happened, there's this thing called sin. It is rebellion, and it crouches, and it wants to pounce on you, and it wants to master you. But Cain, you have to master it. If you don't master it, it'll totally own you. And if it owns you, things won't go well with you. What is the opposite of things going well with you? Things going terrible for you. I want things to go well for you. So obey. Obey, not because I'm the rule maker and I like rules. Obey because I'm giving you advice and commands, yes, but that if you follow them, things will go well with you. But if you reject the ruler... You can't be a tenant in the house. So we see in this parable, yes, a stark warning. There is destruction if we stay stuck in rebellion, but we also see an offer of hope that a, a loving God, that is, the love is beyond our ability to comprehend. We could never demonstrate love at this level. And it is marvelous. Jesus' rejection wasn't a mistake. Jesus is going into Jerusalem flipping tables because he's going to the cross. He knows it, and it's intentional, and it's the Lord's doing. Verse 11, this is to fulfill Scripture. It was always the plan. So Jesus becomes the foundation of our rescue from our own rebellion. What stage of rebellion are we in now? you're going through something you're having a hard time or maybe somebody calls you out on something and you're not feeling it and they pull out the bible and they're like well i don't know the bible says this and your first thought was ah don't preach to me doesn't that echo the rebellion we see in this passage ah who are you to tell who who are you to tell me i'm not anybody but if scripture says it what are you mad at me for Kind of sounds like killing the messenger. That's the parable. And so we demonstrate this when we listen to a sermon. And maybe the pastor is saying something that's faithful to the text. It's not just the pastor going off on his own opinions, but I mean, you look down on the page, it's there, you see it, God's saying it, but, and, and we don't say it explicitly, but somewhere in the back of our minds or deep in our hearts, we're, 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 we're basically saying, nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I see that it's true. I'm not doing that. Or I'll do that some other time. Maybe that's for other Christians, better Christians than I am, but nah, that's not me. Doesn't that stem from the same brand of rebellion that we see here? 
Because some of you may be in here and you're still ignorant. You're still not sure, is Jesus the way? Is, did he really rise from the dead? Is he really the son of God? And, and you're wrestling with that. That's okay. That's part of the journey. But some of us, maybe we're in here, we're convinced. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is, he's king. He's the heir. I just don't do everything he says. But it stems from the same heart of rebellion. And I love what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't just flex his authority, but he demonstrates his, the love of the Father. Guilt is often a poor motivator. Do this or else. But do this and you'll see how marvelous. And Jesus does both with the parable, doesn't he? If you reject, there's destruction. There's the warning. There's the spank. There's the splash of cold water. But then he also billboards the, the sheer love of God. I'm not going to be killed because, oops, I took a wrong step. I'm going on purpose. I'm going because it's the Lord's doing. And in that doing, I become the chief cornerstone upon which a building is built, and you can be a part of it. Not by fixing all the wrong you've done, by coming on board with grace. You repent, and forgiveness is extended to you. We want to go home not just saying, okay, I believe that God is God, Jesus is Lord, and that what he says in the word is true. We don't want to leave either A, knowing certain things that are true and just ignoring it. That's disobedience. Parents, you've found this out, I hope. That if you tell your child to do something and it's not that they do the opposite, it's that they just don't do what you said. That's still disobedience, right? And so we can be stuck there where it's not that I'm sinning in doing something wrong, it's just that I'm not doing the something right that I should be doing. Yeah, that's sin. But nor do we want to say, you know what, I don't want to study the Bible because the more I study the Bible, the more rules I find out, and the more rules I find out, <laughs> there's more stuff I've got to step up to. I'd rather stay in ignorance. But that's also a brand of rebellion, isn't it? Here's truth that I should be learning it so that I could follow, but I don't want to follow it. So let me just not learn it. And so our own laziness when it comes to studying the Bible and studying what Scripture says also stems from the same heart that Cain had, that Adam and Eve had, that these Israelites had, we share that universal bent to go, like making my own decisions. But if we're truly surrendered to the authority of Jesus Christ, we'll surrender to his word, we'll surrender to what he says, we'll consult scripture and not huddle in our own minds with our own thoughts and go, hmm, what am I going to do here? Don't discuss it, do it. So what is, what is it that maybe you're holding out on? Forgiving someone that you know you're supposed to forgive. Talked about that a little bit at the communion time. Is it being more being prayerful? You know you should be praying. Nah, not really. Is it taking the lead in your home? To be a spiritual leader in your home, especially men? Or is it, eh, my wife got that. Eh, she's a better reader than I am. 
step up. So there are any number of things that we know are true, but we just convince ourselves that it's okay to just not do them. And it doesn't look like Jesus is Lord in your life when we do that. So let's ask him for the grace that we need to live obediently, not as slavish minions, but as people that have been freed from what really enslaves us, which is the rebellious heart. And we get to serve a loving God that tells us what's true for our benefit and for his glory. Let's pray.